got a chance to read Machiavelli and been suitably edified. <laughs> well, it is edifying in a way. Um, this would be a much less disturbing book if you could just say, look, this is awful, gotta throw it away. Right? Um, yeah? yeah that was the thing that was disturbing to me reading it this time. Was that I agreed with 60, 70% of it. Well, he's right at least that much of the time. In other words, you gotta do what you gotta do. Right? Um, Machiavelli's point is uh, pertinent to his time in Renaissance Florence, Renaissance Italy in general, but it's also true today. Right? Uh, politics requires those involved rarely to choose between good and evil. More likely, more often, what you're given is a choice between greater and lesser evils. And what that means is you can't keep your hands completely clean. Uh, if you get a chance, uh, there's a very good movie about some of these moral dilemmas. It's called Eye in the Sky. You should have a look at it. It's about collateral damage. It's about Americans and Brits deciding whether to uh, hit a terrorist building with a Hellfire missile. The problem is there's a little girl in front of it selling bread. And they can see her because, and it's actually true, our, uh, uh, it, uh, our satellites are sufficiently powerful so that they can, if you flip a quarter, they can tell you whether it's head or tails from 200 miles up. It's, it's really astonishing. Well, I guess you get what you pay for. The amount of money we, we throw into the military is enormous, and we get some pretty good results. I mean, the rest of the world is quite properly scared of this. But if you get a chance to see that movie, Eye in the Sky, um, it's about trying to figure out what are we supposed to do here. We do some utilitarian calculation, or do we just say, look, we don't kill children? Or if we say, or do we say, look, it's politically necessary, regardless of the fact that we all agree that murdering a child is wrong. We're gonna do it anyway, because we have to, because politics demands it. Those guys are about to go and kill 100 people. It would be a lot easier to sign on to that if Jesus were a utilitarian. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, Mill says Jesus was utilitarian in, in utilitarianism, which is one of the least probable arguments of the 19th century. <laughs> All right. So uh, that, I would recommend that movie to you because that's what politics is ultimately about. If you want to save the world, go to Washington. If you want to save your soul, go to a monastery. All right figure out what you're trying to get accomplished. Um, politician with no moral compromises, there's no such thing. Well, Ocasio-Cortez, mm -hmm. all right? But, you know, she, she wants to ban airplanes in 10 years, so she's completely <laughs> off the wall. Uh, that being said, what do you think of Machiavelli? Yeah, I, I couldn't help but think everything he said was right. Not everything. Yeah, no. I, look, you're not far off there. This guy knows his stuff. I mean, there's a reason why we still read this. All right. Uh, here's a hint. It was Stalin's favorite book. He kept it on his night table. <clears throat> what? Look, if you just thought about that, you would have figured that out without me telling you. All right. Uh, this is about winning. And check it out. Politics is about winning. 
Right? Politics is not about making stirring Fourth of July speeches. Right? Talk is cheap. What you really want to do is get stuff done. All right? And uh, that requires dealing with the world as it is and dealing with the other political players as they are. Now, one of the things you've got to watch is that these other political players are as ruthless as Machiavelli himself. And those that are not as ruthless as Machiavelli himself, they were eliminated long ago. So there's a selection process here. And it selects out for ruthless Machiavellian politics, which makes its peace with evil. Leo Strauss, the great political philosopher, uh, wrote a book called Thoughts on Machiavelli. And it's actually quite a powerful book, but the, he begins it with um, a line that nobody else in modernity uses. He says, I want to start off with the assumption that Machiavelli is a teacher of evil. And that's actually a really powerful, and it's, a, it's kind of an in-your-face way to begin the book, because very, just about nobody else, particularly people that appreciate Machiavelli, they try and soft-pedal the evil. In the same way that the advocates of Nietzsche say, he wasn't really a proto-Nazi. Yeah, he was. All right, there's nothing I can do about that. Right, yeah? At the end of it, um, he talks about, like, if Italy follows all this, they will be good, and, like, they'll be a secure country or nation. What happened... What happens to Italy after? They get invaded by the Spanish and the, and the uh, uh, French. And die out. No, <laughs> not they die, die out, out, but they, they, they get, get beat, They get hammered again and again and again. Uh, 16th century Renaissance Italy is a political nightmare. The Italian peninsula is broken up into five or six city-states, none of whom get along. And the weaker ones, because they can't challenge the stronger ones, look for allies out of town. And that means France, because it happens to be right there on the border, but even more importantly, Spain. This is 1515. The money is flowing in. Spain could buy Italy at this point. All right. So they have the biggest, most formidable military apparatus of their age. Okay, so they get invaded pretty frequently, and they're caught up in these small-scale but bitterly contested wars between city-states. And Machiavelli is sick to death of this crap. First off, remember, he was a practical politician in Florence, and uh, the two leading families that were battling it out were the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, and Machiavelli backs the wrong horse. His side loses a struggle for control of the Florentine government. And as a result, he's captured and then tortured for information. And some, my guess is, the best I can understand it is that at some point on the rack, writhing in pain, he had the opportunity to think about politics. And he said, this is unsuccessful politics. Here I am being racked. And he's saying, you know, on the whole, if I could have avoided this, I would have and should have, because this really hurts. And what that means is 
that Machiavelli has a deep emotional as well as intellectual investment in his political advice. Now remember, because you are the children of Plato, but you have actually already read the Republic, all right? Plato's big concern in the Republic is to connect politics and ethics. Machi's, Machiavelli's concern here is to separate politics and ethics. Right. He said, look, nice guys finish last, or more precisely, nice guys don't finish at all. This is a question of survival. Right. His image of a kind of a Nietzschean ubermensch who is beyond good and evil is Caesar Borgia, who was making a bid to conquer the Italian peninsula. It helped that he was a cardinal and that he was also the, the illegitimate son of the Pope. I hate it when that happens. All right. I mean, so there's very good reason. I mean, he, he, uh, Machiavelli is a contemporary of Thomas More and Erasmus, but it's hard to imagine people more different than Machiavelli and the Christian humanists. I really admire the Christian humanists. I have a, great, I have a very high regard for them. And I mean, Machia, uh, Moore is a genuinely great man, and actually Erasmus is too. I like his humane, benevolent outlook in an age of fanaticism and cruelty. Machiavelli, on the other hand, he'd make the most ferocious of Renaissance politicians step back. Why? Because he says, what lots of other people think. He's got the nerve to put it on paper. Yes? He says at several points, uh, no more of this childish imagination. Let's talk about what's real. There we go. And what is real? Oh, the empirical world. Okay. History. Here's the deal. I mean, the empirical world is a nice way of putting it. Um, all of natural science, or at least modern natural science, here I'm talking about the Renaissance and Enlightenment, modern natural science is based upon observation and experimentation. Can't have it without that. Okay. Well, that's for physical science. But for social science, there is also an empirical source, and that's called history. In other words, for economics or sociology or anthropology, whatever social science you want, there's no lab on the third floor, right? We don't do politics lab. You can't do politics lab. There's no such thing as history lab. So the empirical source of modern social science is history, right? And it's go and uh, this science 3.0 is going to generate its own characteristic new politics and human sciences at the same time that it's going to produce new natural sciences, right? Remember, this happened with Thucydides and the pre-Socratics, too. Pattern is always the same, right? Okay, yeah. Uh, speaking of Thucydides, I mean, there are several points where he sort of uh, pays homage to the master. This is Thucydides revisited. That's right. Very that's, much. That's exactly right. Uh, in a different context, right? Thucydides is... Um, looking at the imminent demise of Athens. 
So he doesn't have any suggestions how you can fix this, fix this, because this is a tra- this is the, four, the fourth act of a tragedy, right? And he saying, look, it's a good thing I died in Act Four because I know what's coming in Act Five. Yeah. Speaking of tragedy, though, he, he, Machiavelli is advocating that we follow the path of a tragedy. He says, imitate great men to the best of your ability, and maybe they went too far, but you'll at least try. I'm like, I'm just read. Uh, read the Greek tragedies, you know where this goes. Well, be careful here. Um, if you were to change it from an irreligious to religious view, yeah. imitating great men might not be such a bad idea, like Pastor Eckhart. That's true. Right, yeah. you gotta, it, it, it counts a lot who you choose to imitate. Yes. I'm confused how he holds the Persians in such high regard if I understand that they were a great empire, but... The Persians were the first multicultural empire. Mm-hmm. In other words, they didn't influence their religious beliefs on the people they conquered. They said, look, pay the tribute. You can have your own king or your own government, whatever you like. You can worship your own gods. But the first of the year, we want our money. All right? And so it was a relatively tolerant empire. It was very large and existed until it was destroyed by Alexander the Great. Mm-hmm. So what it means is, is that a group of very ambitious Persian emperors decided to push the frontiers of their country uh, further and further out and inclu- include more and more people. Machiavelli likes empires. So, but he, he would held that they had to rule in a colonial type form, right? Not like issuing... Depends on the kind of country they've, uh, on the kind of country or city that they've conquered. Mm-hmm. In other words, if the traditions of, of the city have been that, those of self-government, you've got to lean on them and you've got to watch them because they're dangerous. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if they were previously held by an autocrat, you just switch autocrats, they don't care. They'll behave the same way. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's not far-fetched either. All right? um, think of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989. We were already okay, so you guys are now going to have Jeffersonian democracy. And the answer is no, we're not. Why? Because we're used to autocracy, and it's very likely we're going to drift to a different kind of autocracy immediately, and that's actually what happened. Look at the history of China, right? They're dominated by imperial dynasties. After the imperial dynasty system breaks down, this is, would be 1912, for those that are watching, um, then you get the Chinese Communist Party after a bitter series of civil wars, and there, just as oppressive and just as authoritarian as the emperors had been. In other words, it doesn't matter whether the big man is the emperor, the son of heaven, heaven, or the secretary general of the communist party, they're autocrats. Hmm. Cultures that have autocratic traditions don't feel the need for democracy because you don't want what you don't expect. Uh, This is related to an observation I made oh, 20 years or so ago. Um, that's when my daughters were very, very small. And the eldest of them was maybe one year old then. And we just started to switch them from the formula to solid food. And so we gave her things like you know, bananas or uh, you know baby food pears and stuff like that. But you ever want to see a true transformation? I mean, it's not quite a conversion experience, but it's close. <laughs> Give a one-year-old sitting in that high chair Give the one-year-old their first taste of ice cream. <laughs> We're doing this. <laughs> the child had no idea that there was any such experience. 
right? And had not even imagined that there was such a thing. And literally, she raised her hand doing this. <laughs> no, the child's first introduction to ice cream, they like that. I mean, there's no doubt about that. It's the natural value in the world. So I want more of that. Get those pears away from me. This is what I want. So, uh, it's true. Um, you don't expect you don't expect what you haven't encountered before. If you conquer America, you at best lean on the Americans because they have traditions of self-government. They're not going to give that up easily. It's easy to conquer and hold on to autocratic governments. So what he's doing is giving you advice as to how to build your empire. And the guy he has in mind is Caesar Borgia, a man who has. Well, he's a cardinal, of course, but he seems to have no moral beliefs of any kind, which, of course, is a statement about the state of the church at the time. But uh, he was essentially a land pirate. But if a pirate becomes big enough, then he becomes a governor. Then he becomes a politician. And if he wins, then he becomes a legitimate politician. Machiavelli says, "Just it's like the old Oakland Raiders, just win, baby. This is about winning. All right, coming in second is not an option. That means dying. Yeah. I thought it um, was really interesting how uh, a politician's success, how much it relies upon their public uh, massage. Sure. Um, Plato, remember the uh, the difficulty that Socrates was given, or the question that Socrates was given. Socrates, when you take away all seeming of justice." And you just have the being of justice. And then you give another guy, all the seeming, but none of the being. Who's better off? And Socrates says, you're not going to believe this, but give me three books to tell to explain this to you. And at the end of book four, Glauca is going to say, hey, I feel really stupid about this. Clearly, um, politics and ethics need to be bound up. Okay. Machiavelli is going to say no. All right. In fact, what you want is all the benefits that come from seeming to be just and good virtuous and religious. And then you want to do, as necessary, entirely the opposite. Yeah. Because like, if that doesn't perfectly describe politics today, then like... Today? <laughs> I feel like, an, like a, a candidate today, their entire, um, their entire platform depends on how they're perceived socially. Mm -hmm. That's right. By people that, how can I put it, are often low-information individuals. Yeah. Several times during the book, I was thinking to myself, you know, Trump might be a slightly better president if he listened to a little bit of this advice here and there. Yeah, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. I, I don't want to introduce books into Trump's life at this point. <laughs> uh, I mean, God knows what happens then. Yeah, I mean, he'll tweet Machiavelli. At <laughs> you know, I can live without this. Yeah. Along that lines, I feel like he kind of takes a Machiavelli approach where he's just like, I don't really care what you people think, like, I want to do what's going to win for the country. Right, but you, but although you may, you may do that for the love of God, don't say that, mm -hmm. which is what he actually does. But isn't that what Machiavelli's no. doing? No, Machiavelli's like, shut your mouth. You do what you got to do, but you, you... You don't explain... You, no, you don't, well, look, you hold on to the assumption of piety and virtue and goodness. Oh, and you right. do various photo right. ops right. with the Boy Scouts of America and right. with Make you sure know, people that feed the homeless. Make sure no one ever hates you. Well, all right, that's, 
that train left the station some time ago. <laughs> but Machiavelli is onto something actually deeply important, all right? Whether it's more important to be feared or loved. And Machiavelli says, let me tell you the truth about this. It's good to be loved in the sense that, well, you, people will often rally around you and contribute to your uh, pro projects and stuff like that. But he said, look, when it comes down to it, fear you can count on. Love comes and goes. As a matter of fact, in politics, it's too, it's, it's naive to expect gratitude. The question is always, what have you done for me lately? And what will you do for me in the future? The fact that I saved your life in the past, tough luck. Here I am. So there's, no, there's little or no moral reciprocity in, in political life. Yeah, Paul? Um, because he even, I, I forget where he says this, but he writes that even if you can't win the affection of the people, you have to make your strongest enemy fear you. Yeah. Um, if you're not feared, people will attack you or try to undermine you in other uh, ways, more devious ways. All right? So, uh, like Hobbes, who we're going to get to a little later on, fear is the key to Machiavellian politics. In other words, this is power politics. All right? What people fear, they avoid, and fear you can count on. Yeah? I find it also really interesting how he quotes Aristotle's politics to support some of his claims. Look, he's learned, but mostly he doesn't derive his political views from the Western philosophical tradition, nor from the Western religious tradition. Right? He derives his views mostly from the tradition of Roman history. Roman things are good things, and the Roman Empire is his favorite political organization. What Machiavelli is doing, what Machiavelli is doing is looking around at the state of Italy in the early 1500s and saying, I've read Livy, I've read Tacitus, I've read Polybius, and all these Roman historians are describing an astonishing achievement that lasted many centuries and took over what they knew of as the world. And Machiavelli is saying, look, our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers did that. What the hell is wrong with us? Why can we not get our, our act together? Because look, there's unity, there's strength in unity. If you unify Italy, France and Spain are going to be much less likely to invade. I mean, that's the big clarion call at the end. He gives some evidence of what I would call Italian nationalism. He said, look, I don't care who wins, but somebody mop up these city-states, get the job done, and when you do, you're the legitimate governor of Italy, and from there on, we can cast a covetous eye on all kinds of stuff. Yeah? Um, Machiavelli also dedicates a fair portion of his book to talking about the papal right. authority, and mm -hmm. how does... It's not actually a fair point, it's a relatively small point. Here it is, here's, here's how you handle it. It turns out that uh, religiously organized states, by which he means the papal states, 
are like any other political regime, except that this has a, a number of extravagant superstitions associated with it that the people there actually, at least some of them actually believe. So that makes this a particularly hairy and difficult problem to solve. Um, it doesn't require finesse, it requires that you exterminate your enemies. All right. So he said, look, when you go up against the Pope, remember the Pope has armies and is you know, part of this internal wars between the Italian cities. He said, when you go up against him, you got an especially formidable opponent because he can call upon both money and support from people who believe ancient superstitions about a dead Palestinian criminal. Right. Now you gotta remember, given the state of the church, um, his argument is not nearly as far-fetched as he might seem. Caesar Borgia, the illegitimate son of Pope Alexander VI, is a cardinal. I mean, do I have to repeat that to explain how <laughs> messed up that is? So if he says, you know, the church has no particular moral status. Um, you know, there are some ill-educated peasants that, you know, think that God really likes it and stuff, but... Um, well, there's a great line from Gibbon about this. You know, the great historian Gibbon, he's later, but this, he got a point. Gibbon, writing about Rome, said, all religions are true to the common man, or all religions are equally true to the common man. All religions are equally false to the philosopher, and all religions are equally useful to the magistrate. Mm -hmm. That's actually a pretty deep insight, too. Don't ignore culture, particularly religion. If you make the, the mistake of assuming that the inhabitants of Afghanistan would really like American culture, me help you out. No. Worth thinking about. Now one of the things that, now it's dedicated to uh, Cosmo de' Medici, right, the leader of the Medici family, which rules Florence. And what do you think of that introduction to Cosmo? Yeah. He's basically just flattering him, saying... He sucks up to him ferociously. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's really gold-plated, um, you know, boot-licking. I mean, he's a, he's a real piece of work. And then there's a chapter in there against the danger of flatterers. <laughs> what am I missing here? I mean, it's not that big a book. How the hell can you go from that to... The danger of flatter is a whole chapter in a hundred pages, and not notice that that's what he is. Mm -hmm. Right? There are lots of, of weird logical recursions in the case of Machiavelli. Yeah. Or was it like it's good to benefit from being a flatter to give those yeah friends in high places? But okay, then don't instruct these friends about the dangers of flattery. What are you thinking? Wouldn't his situation be different, though, because he's trying to get back into politics and get out of 
Yeah, but every but but most flatterers are not they're not always already in politics. Yeah, uh, Brent. Okay. Um, yeah. Something that I was also interesting to me about the introduction is that I realized that Machiavelli's situation, at least, is very similar to Boethius's at the beginning of the Constellation Philosophy. Both are very powerful, formerly very powerful politicians who have been exiled and tortured and facing consequences of a variety of various sorts. Well, Machiavelli is not about to be tortured to death. That's a big difference. And also, Machiavelli has no interest in lady philosophy or the afterlife. This is, that's true, but <laughs> the, the point is that Boethius spends his entire book trying to eliminate the idea of fortune, mm -hmm. and Machiavelli begins his book by saying, fortune has been very cruel to me. Well, that's true. Uh, that's interesting. Um, Fortuna is not a Christian idea. It's dumb luck. It's one of the few pagan ideas that the, that the church immediately excluded. Right. And said, like, we're not doing anything of this. Right. And yet, um, uh, despite the uh, understanding of God's providence, um, do you experience the world as if there were no dumb luck in it? Do the most deserving people win the lottery? It doesn't look like that to me. Something worth thinking about. All right. Now, Fortuna, the old Roman god, the goddess of luck, right, um, what she does is, is offer him a safe, uh, a safe exit if he turns out to be mistaken. Think about it this way. For a, a scientific hypothesis to be a real hypothesis, it has to be falsifiable. Let me explain to you what I mean by that and why, and then I'll explain to you, I'll show you how that connects to Fortune. I am going to do conceptual card trick for you. Okay? Well, I'm, I'm not really dexterous with cards, but you get the idea. I take the deck, I shuffle it up. I cut it a couple of times and let you cut it a couple of times. Got a deck of cards there. And I say, I'm now going to do a card trick for you. The top card of the deck is either the seven of spades or some other card. Okay, now why is that not much of a trick? What's the problem? I mean, would you be deeply impressed? Why well, you should go on TV and do street magic? That's amazing, because the top card was the seven of spades or some other card. Damn. It's a miracle. Does that strike you as being miraculous? If not, why not? Because there's a possibility that it wasn't the, your seven of spades. Well, remember, I said it was the seven of spades or some other card. Hmm. And so when I turn the top over, it is the seven of spades or some other card. Yeah. What a trick. Why is that not much of a trick? You don't seem impressed. <laughs> because you can be amazed at things I can do in my imagination. I mean, that's a trick, yeah. Well, because your claim is not, it's unfalsifiable. That's right. <laughs> in other words, if you want to make a true hypothesis, a real hypo a genuine hypothesis, always, can, always entails some conditions under which we would understand this proposition to be false. If there are no even conceivable conditions which would falsify it, then it's not a true empirical statement. It's a tautology. 
tautology is a, a sentence in which the predicate, in which the subject is contained within the predicate, which is why it has no possible counterexample. Yeah. So is Machiavelli's political philosophy? Yes. Here's the deal. Remember, he's writing at a, a very early stage of the development of modernity, right? Five hundred years ago, and. What Machiavelli is saying is, look, I can give you good Aristotelian rules of thumb, practical wisdom for getting politics done and for remaining alive. But even a great genius like me, with all my political wisdom, no matter what Mac, what, what, which of my maxims you're using or which of my advice you're taking, there's still always the possibility that dumb luck is going to uh, intervene and you're going to end up with your head on the stick. All right. He said, that's not my fault, that's Fortuna. Now the problem is, once he tells us that either politics works this way and I advise you to do X, Y, and Z, or no. <laughs> okay, well, that's the seven of spades or some other card. See the idea? You know, it's just a non-falsifiable hypothesis. Right? He doesn't realize that, he had, that, that you can't have a genuine scientific theory, either in natural or even social science, if it can't be tested. Right? His covers every possible circumstance, and that's why it's untestable, unfalsifiable. So that's a problem that he has. But look, it's too much to expect that 500 years ago, someone will, uh, will have worked out the logic of falsifiability. So let's give him a break on that. But that is, I mean, much more, that's a much greater logical problem than the church's problem with this wayward Roman goddess, right, who doesn't really belong here, you know? Uh, how much of this do you think was written then in, like, kind of like his like retaliation to politics because he's like so frustrated because even though he thinks he did everything right, he still got screwed over. That's Fortuna for you. Right, so he's a great example of that. And uh, he wants revenge, but he also wants power for its own sake. I mean, if he, you know, apart from the revenge. Yeah, I'm sure that he's, not, he's got a long memory, but uh, I think that Machiavelli knows that he can't reveal his agenda. Right. All right. Um, what we have in Machiavelli all right, and his political science is what is happening during the Renaissance in all the domains of culture. There's a change in perspective from the God's eye view to the human eye view. So, for a long time, we've been talking, since Boethius, or even considerably earlier, back to Plato, um, we've always been trying to talk, we've always talked about the makings of a good ruler. And how is he good? Because he follows morality and understands right and wrong. What Machiavelli is doing is saying, no, that's not what you need. What you need is a guy who knows how to appear honest and virtuous, but knows how to break faith, how to fail to keep his promises, how to do away with rivals when necessary. 
Now here's something you have to think about. Machiavelli is not advocating evil for its own sake. In other words, he's not uh, the Marquis de Sade. Instead, Machiavelli advocates what I would call an economy of evil. He said, look, for the most part, you, like you as a ruler, just like anybody else, should do your best to do the right thing, to stay within the bounds of morality. That's actually very helpful in causing the people to love you, which, although it's not the ultimate point of politics, is actually very helpful and useful. But in addition to that, it helps keep you from being hated. So when you promise somebody uh, a fiefdom or when you offer them uh, control of an army, um, either keep your word or kill them. But you don't want to leave any loose ends with people who hate you. Now when you kill them, you may make it look like an accident. That's, of course, the smart thing to do. But you have to know who to kill and when. You have to know what lies to tell and when. And the point is that you need to survive. If you don't survive, you're out of the game. And the point of the game is to amass as much political power as you can. Power is an end in itself. Calicles, the end of the Gorgias. Yeah. Uh, reminds me of how Romans dealt with um, various uh, like occults and stuff like that by whitening them all out because they did make them a bigger problem. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the kind of strategy that works every time except the last time when it meets Christianity and these people are crazy and they won't I mean you wipe them out and then they pop up again they're like blasted dragon's teeth in Ezekiel uh, oh no no it's not in Ezekiel he raises them differently those bones but the point is this um, what's happening in the Renaissance is a shift in every domain of culture from the divine to the human What Machiavelli is to politics, perspectival drawing is to painting. What that is is representing the world as it looks to the human eye, not to God's eye. Remember those Gothic cathedrals that were made in the shape of a cross because God never could look down and find them easily? Okay, we stopped doing politics from the sky. We've started doing politics on the ground and we're going to talk about it as it appears to people. Same sort of thing is going to emerge when, in about 1600 when Galileo constructs a telescope. What is he doing? He's representing the physical world as it actually seems to people, not the God's eye view of uh, the cosmos that we got in Dante. Uh, yeah. What is, is he um, religious in any way? I, I, I think it's unlikely, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know for sure. So he, doesn't, he doesn't talk about it. But a man who writes a book on politics with no reference to the afterlife and with lots of endorsements of what might be called mortal sins, <laughs> my guess is that religious problems are not uppermost in his mind. Well, that's how it seems to me anyway. Yeah. 
And his thing, his little section about Moses, how he thinks he's a, one of the four great armed prophets, kick ass. Yeah, how was he armed? Armed prophets, we never hear about them. <laughs> how was Moses armed? Uh, because his people um, had uh, implements with them when they were crossing the desert, and um, God was behind them, telling them to kill all the Canaanites and the Philistines and stuff like that. Oh. You get a look at something like the Book of Joshua. Um, it's a real bloodbath, hmm. right? So the Israelites were had arms. I mean, I don't know the details about how they got them, but they clearly had them because they conquered Palestine, right? And their conquering, the way wars were back then, was genocidal. They killed every living thing in the city. Yeah. So how is that different from the Muslims? Conquering? It's not. Muhammad's an armed prophet too. Machiavelli says, look, armed prophets sometimes win. Unarmed prophets never do. So in what perspective then is, is, the, is the Bible different than the Quran in saying it's, it's a military, if it's a militaristic conquest? It's not. Right. Note that uh, Christianity grew very slowly for the first couple of centuries under Roman rule. But it really began to expand and to uh, infiltrate all elements of late Roman society once it gets legalized by Constantine and made the state religion by Theodosius. And he said from then on, Christianity is a militarized regime, religion. He said, no wonder we conquer. This, this grist for your mill there. Some stuff to think about there, yeah? But it, <clears throat> but it was able to take over the world's largest empire at that point without militarizing. And what was the world's largest well, empire? Well, I mean, it was able to... Um, they were able to Christianize Constantine before, being, before having a standing army. That's true. That's true. Um, the Christianization of Constantine is very dicey. Uh, I mean, the guy holds off on getting baptized until he's on his deathbed because he doesn't want to get snagged for any sins. Yeah, and it's, it's only because... He, right. And he had a dream about winning. Yeah. And then, because, he, because his nitwit believes the, that his dreams are information from the spirit world about military activities, uh, says, look, you know, if I, could, if I get victory under the sign of the cross, I'm a sign of the cross guy. Oh, and his religiosity is the thinnest veneer you can imagine. But he says, look, I'm not going to bite the hand that feeds me. The cross helps me win. I'm, with the cross. I'm down with the cross. All right. So uh, he, what he argues is, is that religion can be important provided it has violence or the threat of violence behind it. Yeah? And just out of curiosity, what ends up happening to to what? Um, they continue to get invaded by the French and the Spanish. For example, later on in the 1500s, this would be interesting, like this. The King of England has a problem. All right. Um, his wife, who is actually the widow of his brother, um, seems unable to produce a male heir. Now, Henry VIII is excited about this. Not for frivolous reasons. In other words, yeah, he has a, a weakness for women, but he's not the first or the last politician that that's going to be true of. Right? What he wants 
is to avoid being plunged into a civil war like the War of the Roses, which is what established the Tudor family as the king of kings and queens of England. Right? So he is understandable and justifiable in his search for a legitimate male heir. Without a legitimate male heir, there's going to be a free-for-all when he dies, and they get thrown back into civil war. He, uh, he quite properly um, wants to avoid that. In other words, that's what any um, prudent magistrate would want. So he says, look, I have to unload uh, my wife. And he says, well, look, it's unseemly just to toss her and marry another because unlike Islam, Christianity doesn't allow for that. But in the past, not just in the past, but you'll find it in the future too, um, it turns out that it's really not hard for really powerful, influential people like, say, kings to find a way to nullify their marriage which is different from a divorce, which God doesn't approve of. All right? Now, um, it's, your best chance of getting a, a direct annulment is to go to the top, ask the Pope. So he sends a letter to the Pope saying, look, uh, I have to unload Catherine of Aragon. Look, she's really, really devout, I know. And yes, she's, we have a legitimate marriage, but I had some of my intellectuals dig through the Bible to find a reason why this is just woefully immoral. It turns out in Leviticus, you're not allowed to marry your brother's wife. It's incest. So, sorry that I am. All right. I have to unload this incestuous wife. By the way, I've already chosen my next one. Okay. Now, the Pope ordinarily would just sign off on this. It wouldn't be a problem. In other words, uh, it's not, it doesn't begin, this, this activity does not begin with Henry VIII. All right. Um, Many kings and uh, political officials have had problematic wives, problematic marriages. And you can always find some. Think of, uh, I mean, just nowadays, think of the Kennedy family in Massachusetts. All right. Um, there are probably more annulments among the members of that family than there are family members, because some of them have multiple annul annulments. And look, if you have enough pull, with the Archdiocese of Boston, you can get things done. And the proof, is, I mean, there's too many proofs for a family like the uh, Kennedys, all right? Not hard to get an annulment. I mean, you can all, if you look at canon law and you look at the Bible and you look at tradition, um, and you have hired a good canon lawyer and they can afford the best, you find somebody to say, aha, here is the passage which we are going to, into which we are going to shoehorn your personal life, and then you are going to get your, your annulment. So it was not, I mean, in other words, the Henry quite reasonably thought that he was going to get an annulment with no problem. It's a rubber stamp. But Philip II of Spain is perched on a mountain of silver. No, I am not making that up. Here we're talking about late 1500s. The amount of money that's been flowing into Spain is the largest windfall in human history. They found a Potosi in uh, Bolivia, all right, an astonishing amount of silver. How much? 
me give you some idea. Um, most really work, working silver mines are going to have something like 1%. I mean, if, if getting 1% out of the rock, you know, that you have to crush up and then uh, hit with chemicals to, to break it apart and to get the, uh, get the silver out. If you, if you have 1% ore, you have a great bonanza in front of you. All right, at Potosi, the ore was 50%. And the, it was mined from a single mountain made of that. They found a seam of silver that was 20 feet wide right, and over 170 feet long. I mean, just, you pick it up and you got this big chunk. Uh, in, in other words, you have uh, a lifetime's worth of money. You can just pick it up and put it in your saddlebags. So what they do is enslave the locals, and when the locals die off, which is almost immediately, they bring in black slaves. They force them to mine, and this money goes back to Spain. Completely deranges the uh, economy of Western Europe because nobody's invented economics yet, so no one knows what inflation is, and everything but silver becomes cheap, or rather becomes expensive. Now the other half, and this is funny, I've just noticed this, because I've been writing my history of the world, and what I found is really twisted into the thing. At least, uh, roughly, half the money goes to Spain. The other half, you're going to love this, it goes to the Philippines. But what is this money doing in the Philippines? The Chinese will not allow Westerners to dock at their ports to directly buy and sell. Instead, they send their merchants out to neutral ground, one of the islands of the Philippines, and uh, it's one of the most, one of the busiest harbors in the world at the time, because all of China's exports to Western Europe have stopped going along the Silk Road because that takes two years to traverse. Here, you just you know a week you're out in the Philippines and you can sell it, bring it back. What they're doing is selling porcelain, silk, high value items. Uh, which means that they can get a lot of value into one uh, ship. Right? And they said many ships, it's actually, I mean, it's actually a regular port. Now, this is what's interesting about this. Right? They're bringing spices and silk and all the stuff that the Chinese produce that nobody knows how to do, like porcelain. Okay. Then, the Chinese sell that, sell this stuff, but the West is so backward, and the Chinese are so um, ethnocentric, there's nothing in the West that they want. So in other words, you can't bring them wheat or anything, there's nothing they want. All they want is hard money. Okay. What they get, though, I mean, and they get that hard money, completely deranges their economic system, too. And they don't know why it's happening. All right? Now, it gets even worse. At the same time, because what we're having here is an interaction between not Spain and China. This is an interaction between the New World and China, the Pacific Coast of South America. What they do is they bring in a whole bunch of new crops, like, for example, uh, corn, and like, for example, uh, uh, sugar, um, sweet potatoes, and other useful objects, uh, useful items. Now, here's the deal. This is one of the things 
I, I think is most astonishing in my research and my thinking. Um, it turns out that the, the Chinese have always had a strategy of maximizing their population by, giving, by keeping them on the edge of subsistence. Right? Uh, Chinese peasant with a beer belly, no such thing. Right? <laughs> You're getting just enough to remain alive. Okay. These new crops are high calorie, and the potato, of course, is, is among the potato, corn, and stuff like that. It grows even in bad lands, you know, lands that would have been wastelands before that. And it also um, allows the peasants to increase their calorie intake. So this is something the peasants are desperate for. Okay, problem is this. Right? In order to do this, they clear forests. And they also clear hillsides, you know, that it's hard to grow rice on because you have to terrace it. You don't have to do that with potatoes. I mean, potatoes come from the Andes. Stick it in the ground. Um, next year, you're going to have a whole bunch of them. Right? And you don't even have to harvest it. You just leave it there. Right? Pick it when you need it. So, I mean, this is many great adventures. Here's what happened, though. The unintended consequences go like this. When they cut down those forests, and planted those hills. They had to clear, of course, the hills to do that, bushes and shrubs and vines uh, that were growing there. What happened was, as a result of these new farming methods, you had an enormous amount of water driving soil off the forests and off the mountains and hills. As a result, remember that China has always been, and is today, a water poor. Relative to their population, they have a very small amount of water. Okay. Once they start these new methods, right, and because uh, particularly corn and tobacco, too, that becomes really popular. You know that's addictive, so they really grew on that. So they got all these new crops. The result is the, it quickly exhausts the land. So they stop planting there and you move to someplace else. But once you do that, the rains come, wash all this dirt into the rivers, the Yellow River and the Huanghe. And as a result of this, remember how many people are, are in China and how many people we're, we're talking about planting stuff? The result is that the rivers silt up. What else are they going to do? And what, that, what happens is, starting around 1550 and going on almost to 1900, what you had is the most terrible once-in-a-century uh, floods of the river because, again, the river, uh, once it silts up, um, pushes the banks. And once you get water in there, as the, as the silt rises, um, eventually the... the rivers start making new cuts in the ground. As a result, they are having these once-in-a-century disasters about every five to ten years. They don't know why this is happening, because they don't see the big picture, because they don't realize that the change in crops has caused uh, silting up of the rivers, which causes floods, which creates political disaster. Okay? So, both China and Europe 
are benefiting from the connection to the new world, and they're also reeling from the outcome. Something worth thinking about. That's part of why China was so politically weak what, in the age of European contact. What they're having is environmental problems that they themselves caused, but they didn't know what was causing it. All right. So that's something worth thinking about. I'm, I know that I've digressed a bit here, but this is something worth knowing. All right, let me come back to Machiavelli, though. All right. He says you have to be a lion and a fox. Why? Yeah. You have to be powerful, but stealthy is, is what it is. Right? In other words, you have to be able to deploy both force and fraud. In other words, for weak opponents, you just crush them. For strong opponents, you help them crush themselves. Remember what Thomas More says about what, how the utopians make war? You bribe officials, tell them to bring us his head, we'll pay you for it. There are lots of ways to do stuff like that. Oh, now let me come back to uh, Henry VIII. Here's the point of that earlier excursion. Henry VIII wants to get rid of Catherine of Aragon. In the 1560s, Spain is ruled by Philip II, and it's the richest country in the world, per capita, when you can't touch China. But the point is this. Philip II of Spain is very concerned about family reputation. So he sends an ambassador to the Pope to explain to him that if he grants a divorce for this completely blameless woman, Catherine of Aragon, that he will very shortly thereafter find his head on a stick. Now this gets the Pope's attention, since Spain now has the largest army and navy uh, on that side of the world. And, and because the, Itali the Spanish have successfully invaded Italy several times before, and this is before they started getting all this money, Pope says, well, all right, that's a problem. So he stalls, and he says, well, you know, I'm thinking about this. I'm not really sure. Your biblical exegetes say that this is incest, but we're looking at it. We're saying it's okay because he got a, uh, I forget what the, a variance or whatever it is that, the, that you got that uh, kings get to marry their brother's wife. So he said, look, you got the dispensation. Um, I really can't do that. Henry says, oh, yes, you can. Um, this is ridiculous. I Look, any king would expect you to take care of this like that. Now, the Pope does not want to say, well, look, um, the nephew of Catherine of Aragon, Philip II, doesn't want his family honor besmirched by you. And if I give you that divorce, he is going to put my head on a stick. I mean, that, that's unseemly. You don't want to give that as your papal reason for not voiding a marriage. So instead he says, I'm afraid I can't do anything for it. And Henry says, well, look, I am the king of England, and my job is to avoid civil war when I die. I need a, a, a living male heir. Catherine has been unable to give me that heir. She's got to go. And if you don't allow this divorce, I am going to join the Protestant Reformation. I'm going to start my own religion. It's going to look just like Catholicism, except that I'm going to replace the Pope with the king. 
and I know I'm going to grant myself a divorce, and then you lose England for the Catholic side. Um, the Pope said, oh, I'd really like to help you, Henry, but um, I'm staring down the barrel of the biggest gun in the world, and I'm not, I'm not going to do that. All right? This is what generates the Protestant Reformation and eventually the martyrdom of Thomas More. All right? But it's politics. It's not about religion. Yeah? Why, why did why did he take it out on the Pope instead of taking it out on Spain? Because Spain would have kicked his butt. I mean, Spain is going to, is going to try and straighten things out in 1588 with the Spanish Armada. The Aztecs and the Incas paid for that. Not only that, I'd be tempted to say the Aztecs and Incas paid for the Enlightenment. What do you mean paid for it? Um, they provided enough money to Western Europe so that they could create the first non-clerical intellectuals in the Western tradition. Right? Prior, I mean, prior to the advent of the church at the end of the Roman Empire, I mean, before that there had been uh, secular intellectuals, all right? the Stoics, the Skeptics, the Epicureans. But after the rise of Christianity, it had been, intellectual life had been dominated by the church. Often the only people who could read and write were clergymen. Okay. After about 1500, when this money starts flowing in, we have a lot of intellectual changes because of the increased access to uh, Greco-Roman and Islamic texts. And it's possible to take a percentage of the population, mostly really smart guys, and to allow them not to work in the usual sense. They don't have to plow the field. You can allow them to examine the Bible to give Henry arguments and stuff like that. Mm. And what that means, is, and what happens then, is for the first time intellectual life breaks away from Catholicism. So now we have secular intellectuals who don't answer to the church. And the result of that, or, or one of the outcomes of that, is the rise of modern natural science. Unlike all the other cultures in the world, the West has an institutional advantage. It's called the university. There were lots of places where you could study and learn deep stuff all over the world, well prior to the advent of universities. Universities are unique, uniquely Western, and they actually start in the 1200s, places like Padua and Oxford. These intellectuals are no longer clergymen, and it's from this stratum of intellectuals that are not clergy that the great achievements of Western science are going to come at the time, during the Renaissance and, and uh, Enlightenment. So, it turns out all the different threads of Renaissance culture dovetail together remarkably well. Machiavelli is something like the morning star of modern political science. Right? He marks a clear break, a clear turning of the corner, away from prescriptive political advice. It tells you what to do in order to be the kind of king that eventually gets canonized. A couple of the French kings, in fact, were canonized during the Crusades, or after, you know, after they died, but during the Crusades. You want, if you want to go to heaven, 
This is the way to do that. It's going to get you killed as a king, very likely. But um, assuming you're a religious believer, up we go. Right? Didn't weren't the Christian warriors given a special great circle around Mars in the Paradiso? Okay. Um, on the other hand, if you don't anticipate a future state of rewards and punishments, then that advice is futile and counterproductive. So Machiavelli is going to say, I want to give uh, political advice to adults, not to children that believe noble lies. Right? And look, it's not like Machiavelli was the first person to give kings advice like this. It's that prior to Machiavelli's lapse into the, into the bad taste of writing it down, um, people would say this quietly behind the scenes to the king, saying, look, um, I know you made a promise, but you can't keep it. If you do, um, you're going to throw the balance of power out. You're going to end up with your head on a stick. That head on a stick theme comes up frequently in Renaissance politics. All right? And he said, you should really avoid that. And the way to avoid that is to get them before they get you. But you can't have a reputation for being a bad man who lies all the time. Then no one's going to work with you. So you have to seem virtuous and good. And you have to be as wicked as everybody else. Or more wicked. Now the point is not to do as much evil as you can. The, the point is to deploy evil when necessary for your own political advantage. And when you do that, what you do is, it's preferable if you can have somebody else blamed for it. This is the art of the double cross and the art of the triple cross. You like that story of Orca? Or, uh, yeah, I think his name is Orca, Orso, something like that. Um, he's the second in command for a prince that's conquered a city. He says, that city is rebellious. Go in there, because you're a really cruel and rapacious individual, and kick their ass. Kill everybody that needs to be killed. Threaten everybody. Scare everybody. Um, show them just how fierce my regime is. And then the guy goes in and does that. And then, after the dirty work is all done, and this guy's been a lightning rod for everybody's hate, he comes back with his own men at night, and he has them cut Orca in half. And then they leave the two halves in the town square. The next morning, people think it remarkable that there are two halves of Orca in the town square. And then the prince comes out and says, I've heard this guy was really cruel and rapacious. And I won't tolerate that in my regime. You've got to like this. No, come on. You've got to give this guy points for style. That's a stylish thing to do. Right? <laughs> well, no, and the problem is, so much of politics works on principles like that. That's actually not, I mean, in other words, that's not unusual. Right? It happens surprisingly often. You, have, you give somebody a job behind the scenes, and then afterwards you disavow all knowledge of that. And say, I'm shocked, shocked that this guy's gone off the reservation. We'll have to do something about him. I, I got him. I'll cut him in half. Get the idea. Right. Now, here's the big question that I have. Right. This is a, the thing that makes me pause and consider. Um, 
has Machiavelli proved himself too smart for his own good? All right. Here's the problem. If you were a king, or if you were Cosmo de' Medici, and you got this book, and he's sucking up to you ferociously, and you sat down and read the book one evening. Notice this is not a giant treatise. This is the opposite of the kind of thing you get in scholasticism. Instead, this is supposed to be able to be read by a practical politician in an evening so that he can get the lowdown. This is the bullet points of how to run politics. Okay. If you were Cosmo de' Medici, would you hire Machiavelli? The funny thing is, I was thinking, is he, he tells you don't trust any any uh, advisor that instantly you have to trust the ones that are respected so when he's giving him this book and he's saying yeah that rule applies for everybody else but listen to me right away that doesn't make sense mm. yeah I, I wouldn't hire him but I wouldn't take his advice ah that's interesting alright so uh, you want the ideas but not the man yeah do what he's doing to everybody else he's saying he's like backstabbing them in a way he's, he just takes his ideas and say thank you very much it was my idea okay that's interesting um, I'm not sure that most princes needed to have uh, perfidious actions uh, explained to them. Most of them understood that from the beginning. Uh, remember, Machiavelli's not the first to think these thoughts. He's the first to write them down. There was kind of a gentleman's agreement for the previous thousand years or so that although politics works this way, for the love of God, you don't write this down. Who knows who, I mean, again, back to Plato's world. Who knows who's going to read your book and what inferences they're going to draw? All right. So Machiavelli writes down what many other people have been thinking. Yeah. That's why I had, when I read when I read this, I have a really hard time wondering if he's actually advocating for this stuff or if he's criticizing, like he's saying, this is how these people. Some people have tried to read this as a parody, as a send up yeah. of Machiavellianism. Uh, I think that's clever in the sense that it would probably get your tenure because it's so improbable. But uh, it looks to me, in other words, uh, as Freud would say, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And sometimes a book about Machiavellianism is just Machiavellianism. Uh, it could be exactly the opposite of that. He does not strike me as being saturated in platonic irony. Right. I, so I don't see it as a as a send-up. I think he's quite serious about this. Mm -hmm. right. Now, one of the great things we're thinking about is that Frederick the Great of Prussia, the enlightened despot of the 17th century, he, he, claimed, he had a book attributed to him called Anti-Machiavel, in which he refutes point by point all of the Machiavellian arguments. So he shows himself to be an intellectual, so it makes him an enlightened despot. And then he invades his neighbors. <laughs> He's got the best and most efficient military force in Europe, not because Prussia is so big, but because it's just ferocious, and the whole state is on a war footing all the time. Hmm. I wonder if he likes hunting, like Machiavelli said, you're supposed to hunt. <laughs> now, if I were okay, and I wanted to be Machiavellian, right? I would invite Machiavelli to my court, and then I'd have him killed, and I'd have all the copies of this burned except mine. Yeah. That's the Machiavellian move, yeah. Wasn't yeah. the prince at, um, on the index 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can be sure of that. <laughs> um, but, I mean, let's be fair. Um, if you look at the books in this course, I would venture that half of them have been on the index. All right, and that's a problem. You know? How do you find, like, the perfect balance between actual morality and good politics, then, if he's kind of breaking the opposite way? Um, virtue is a mean between two vices. I'm not sure that there's a silver bullet that solves that problem. Mm -hmm. right? Requires phrenesis, good judgment, and that's in short supply. Mm -hmm. right? Marcus Mar Aurelius, possibly? Marcus Aurelius, yeah. But, well, look, I recommend to all of you, do your best to be that. Mm -hmm. all right? I mean, I try and I fail. I suck at that. But on the other hand, you know, it's done me a lot of good, and he's one of my great friends. You know, I've been reading Marcus Aurelius since I was 14 or 15. And so it's almost half a century. And uh, if you sit around waiting for Marcus Aurelius to arrive, you're going to wait a long time. So uh, I don't know how to square the circle and how to make politics moral. And, and the one, and the political leaders in America that have been the most conspicuously moral, somebody like Jimmy Carter, turned out to be awful presidents. Look, the President of the United States has men killed routinely. Don't kid yourself. Long before you were born, America transformed from a country into an empire. It's just that the world fell into our lap in 1945. We weren't looking for it. We just, damn, everything else is destroyed. All right, We have the Russians to compete with. But uh, their, uh, their favorite philosophers are wrong, and intellectuals have never been able to run an economy, and they're cooked. They lose the entire 20th century. So it falls into America's lap. We're an empire now. We have military bases in 190 countries. It's about as many countries as there are. Yeah, there are a little over 200. That's exactly right. We haven't felt the need to uh, militarize Andorra. How many do we have it in? 190 or so. So that's something like 90 or 95 percent of the world's of the world. You ever wonder why we spend so much on military stuff? The answer is because we keep the we keep order in the world. We're everywhere at all, at all times. All right. I want to go back to ask you about Machiavelli. If you were a king, would you hire him? Cosmo de' Medici didn't. I wouldn't, because he's going to put a knife in my back as soon as he gets the opportunity. Or, if not that, he'll make a deal with Caesar Borgia so he can put a knife in my back. All right? Um, Renaissance kings and princes had food tasters for very good reasons. The Medici family was famous for poisoning their friends. Matter of fact, one of the Medici, this is cute, well, of course, there's Lucrezia de' Medici, all right? <laughs> she's the new Medea. <laughs> I mean, she's really bad. But uh, other, her father, other members of the Medici, he had a special ring made, and it was in the form of a lion's head with a lion having an open mouth. And he used to turn it around, twist the collet, like in the myth of Gyges. Shake people's hand, and the teeth on the lion, because the lion's mouth were open, um, were pointed and sharp. And he used to have them painted with uh, very powerful poisons. So he would shake your hand closely, 
right? And it would kind of pinch your hand. We introduce the poison and you'd be dead the next day. That's the handshake of death. That's better than the kiss of death. I don't like it. All right, so you can see, look, given that Machiavelli is dealing with people like this, I find it perfectly comprehensible why he would say, well, look, this is how it really works. The problem is this. Um, Machiavelli would not be hired by any prudent ruler because this guy is dangerous. Now, let me flip the coin. Suppose Machiavelli were a ruler. Suppose he actually does in, you know, the guy that hires him. And so now he's a ruler. And he offers you a chance among his circle of advisors to step up. Would you take it? Why not? And choose the monastery. Okay, I understand that. What was the I mean, question? That makes, um, if Machiavelli were to offer you a position as an advisor, a position of political power, would you take it? It's like the Raphael Hithalday. What? Uh, Raphael Hithalday, yeah, <laughs> squared. Right, because here it's not uncertain what the character of the ruler is. We got this. So, any of you want to get just involved in this? I think he would just use you. What? I think Ma Machiavelli would just use you in whatever way mm -hmm. he would. Okay. Um, yeah. Maybe it's because he's a better man than I am, but I think Thomas More would take the job. He might. All right. And he would end up like Orca. Yeah. Here's the problem. Right? Like he, he, when he entered politics in England, he knew that that was where he was headed. Right. Uh, and he took it up anyway. Deeply impressive, I have to say. Um, as he says, we cannot make politics good, but we can be prevented from being very, very bad. And if we work really hard, it'll just be very bad. Which is actually about the best you can hope for, you know? I wouldn't want to be on the same continent. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. You're screwed if you're against him or Okay, that's the point. Machiavelli has painted himself into a corner. He's no longer a social animal. He can't work for anybody. And nobody's going to work for him if that has any sense. Of course, the number of senseless people is very large. You know? Wasn't the Prince uh, published posthumously? Uh, it was widely it was widely spread posthumously, but uh, not. When, I mean, when he's sending it off to Cosmos, he's not dead yet because he wants something out of it. Okay. So here's the big issue. All right. Um, since human beings are social animals, this is advice as to how to stop being human. Like Callicles' advice in the Gorgias, it's the same advice. Okay. Yeah. Do you think the people before him recognized that they would paint themselves in a corner if they published this work, but they might as well? And that's the reason they just kept it in their heads. That's part of it. Also, uh, this is not the kind. These these are dangerous ideas, and you. You popularize them at your peril, yeah. So it turns out that Plato was right and the tyrant dies alone. That's a way of putting it, yes. If you ever get a chance, you should read uh, Xenophon's dialogue 
called The Hero. It's, the, book, the book is titled On Tyranny, and the reason why it's interesting not, is not Xenophon, that's kind of a pedestrian brain, but um, the commentary that's written on it by two people that are well worth reading. One is Leo Strauss. The second is Alexander Koyeva, who at the time was the leading Hegelian thinker in Europe. And what would the leading Hegelian thinker of Europe do for his profession? He's not a professor. He's an official who is taking part in unifying Europe. He works for the EU. Why? Because the EU is super Hegelian. Now, Leo Strauss, I mean, m many of my teachers in college were Strauss's students. He was dead by the time I got there. But Leo Strauss is very wor much worth reading if you get the chance. Right. And yeah, what they both come to the conclusion is the tyrant is the least happy of men. Why? Here's the deal. Tyrant can't trust anybody. Which means that you have to do what Stalin did. Periodically, you have to clean house and just kill everyone. Be not because they were plotting against you, but because they potentially could plot against you someday. So you get rid of them early on. Like killing Astanax in the ruins of Troy. Hmm. Right. Now, the downside of that is, of course, when you have the last big purge in 39, and you kill off uh, the majority of the senior military officials, that means your armies are now being run by captains who have precious little military experience, which means when the Nazis turn on you, they're going to eat your lunch for you. That's the downside of that. A big part of why Russia did so bad in the first year of the Second World War is because they had no experienced officers, because they're all dead. That's the downside. Right. So Machiavelli is very thought-provoking. We can't just eliminate him, we can't just throw him out, because this is the way politics works both then and now. Right. Was it Harry Truman said? If you want a, a friend in Washington, buy a dog. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta like that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Machiavelli's point is that politics is at even at very best imperfectly moral. That we can't have an absolute disjunction between politics and ethics. Look, even the Mongols need an ethical code which allows them to create justice between themselves, otherwise they wouldn't be able to invade stuff. Right. Oh, and that's what Plato talks about in the Republic. Even robbers and brigands need justice. If they don't have it, they all cut each other's throats. They never get a chance to kill anybody else. But these codes are always partial and imperfect. And the goal of them is not salvation. The goal of them is political power. Power is an end in itself. Not because it should be. He's not prescribing power. He's saying, look, this is how people act. And he knows this from history, which means that we now have a new kind of social science. Machiavelli is to science 3.0 what Thucydides is to science 2.0.
remember when I said that there was always a social scientific element, a, human, a, a soft sciences, human sciences element to every scientific revolution? Well, Machiavelli is right on time. One thing that's really interesting about about Machiavelli is that he he essentially had what we would call a great books education. Of course, he was very well educated. He did all his reading. Right. Uh, and what it shows is that I'm not sure he spends all that much time with Augustine or Aquinas, but that's <laughs> but so he he would have had access to them if he wanted. Oh, to. Well, yes, if he were interested, and he might be interested because you have to manipulate other people's superstitions. Right. And so what's interesting to me about that is that it really becomes. The books do something to you, mm. but it becomes what do you do with the books? Yes. I mean, everybody's got to confront this in the same way that all Christians have to face the music and read their Nietzsche. Right? It's a harrowing experience, but we didn't come here to have fun. We came here to become educated and have fun on your own time. My time, read your books. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, uh, just about at the end, I want to say that Thursday, you're going to like this, we're going to read one of Machiavelli's literary efforts. Damn, this is funny, and damn, this is weird. He wrote a play, a comedy, called Mandragola. All right, we're reading that for Thursday. And that is actually, it's short, it's accessible, it's funny, and it's really cynical. And we're, we're going to find Machiavellian politics um, has its humorous elements, which you wouldn't expect. <laughs> what's, it, what's it about? Oh, what it's about. It's great. Um, an old man all right, has a young wife, and some third guy um, falls in love with or is attracted to the wife, but can't get access because of the old man. So he... And the old man is, has uh, medical problems. He is told, because the young man bribes the doctor, um, that what you can do is you can take this root, the mandragola root, and you give it to your wife. She will conceive and everything will be great. But you know, this is what's important. The first man to have sex with your wife after she has the mandragola root will die because that's what the mandragola does. So what you have to do is find some poor sap, like that young guy, to have sex with your wife so you don't die. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is just the most messed up thing you can imagine. And the wife just says, yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, this is just so messed up. Um, it's hilariously funny. In other words, um, it's Miller's tale funny, and it's rude and crude and lewd, but Machiavelli, is stealing a line from Plato. He is teaching you through art. Yes, it's very funny. Stop and think of what you're laughing at and why you think it's funny. This is a great book. You'll see, we'll have fun with that on Thursday. And if you get a chance, uh, you know, you should see what Vice President Pence has to say. Uh, you know, um, he may have more than 140 characters to work with. <laughs> and, uh, you know, 
Are you being interesting? Kind of a feather in the cap, I'll be Maria. You know, it's, it oh, looks no, good for us. All right, see you all on Thursday. We need to order the secretary. <laughs> Hmm? Oh yeah, I have to write two questions now. Uh, Paul, what did he say? He was son- he was. Uh, what?